Amen. It's a good day to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 22. I thought about being it's the first Sunday in December, just taking a break from Acts and, you know, talking about Christmas and the birth of Christ and the gospel. We are going to do that, but I wanted to finish this section first. Otherwise, when we come back to it, it'll be we'll be jumping right back into the middle of a story. And so I want to finish up to verse 11 of chapter 23 today, and then in the next two or three weeks we'll start um, talking about the birth of Christ and the celebration of the gospel and, and who we are in Christ. We always talk about that, really, because that's what the whole Bible is about, but you know what I mean. So as we've, as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, we've been walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, section by section. Uh, we have seen over the course of these chapters and the decades that they represent just the Lord, uh, the Spirit of God working through His witnesses um, and the church on mission, making disciples, uh, doing what Christ has called us to do in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've, we've seen and talked a lot uh, through these chapters of Acts how uh, the early church was on mission, and we've talked a lot about enduring suffering, hadn't we? For, for the gospel, for the gospel's sake, for the mission's sake, we talked about giving ourselves to Christ's mission, regardless of where the Lord chooses to lead us and use us as His instruments. But we've also seen, as we've walked through these, and in your own experience, that when you, um, when you are giving your life for the mission of Christ and you are engaging in making disciples and you go to witness to your relatives or your neighbors or people at your job or wherever the Lord has placed you to be His witness, um, it, it's hard. It's hard when we face uh, persecution or people that are hostile to the gospel or just the rejection or the ridicule of individuals in, in our circle of influence that we try to, uh, try to evangelize and to witness to. We know that it's, it's not easy to be faithful when it costs something or when it, when it feels like it's a risk and that risk is very high. So what we, what we must do as Christ's witnesses, according to His Word, is we need to prepare ourselves. We need to be prepared to give a defense, like we talked about in the verse we read last week, 1 Peter 3.15. We need to prepare ourselves right now to stand faithfully as the world and governments and culture and all of that moves further and further away from the truth and also brings with it all of those that are around us, you know, the, the cultural viewpoints that are influencing our families and our neighbors and our friends and all of those things. We need to be prepared to stand faithfully as Christ's witness. And to live faithfully as a witness for Jesus Christ, it requires wisdom to know how to navigate the, the times and the conversations and the situations that we will inevitably find ourselves in. I think today's text, as we see the aftermath of Paul's um, speech to the crowd in the temple courts, it, it shows us wisdom about how to navigate those situations. It provides us wisdom as Paul navigates what, quite frankly, looks like a, a hopeless situation. 
Now, I, I hope that you've been here for the last few Sundays. If not, I'll try to catch you up. We are jumping right back into the middle of a story. So I'll try to give you as much context as I'm able as time allows. But over the last few sections of Scripture that we've walked through over the last few weeks, Paul has been mobbed in the temple court. Uh, he was accused of teaching against the law and against Israel and against the temple. And he is, he is being beaten to death by the mob. And the Romans stepped in and they pulled him away from the mob, not because they love him so much, but just they were trying to quell the riot. And they actually arrest him. They put him in chains. And as he's being carried back up to the fortress, to the barracks of the Roman garrison, Paul asks the Roman tribune, the commander there, if he can speak to the crowd. And the commander allows him to speak to the crowd. And last week we looked at the speech that Paul gave. We took it line by line, section by section, and examined what Paul said. He basically gave his testimony before the crowd. He told them about how Jesus had transformed him on the road to Damascus and sent Ananias to speak the gospel to him and he just told them what happened to him he speaks to them in hebrew and just tells them his his story of how jesus transformed him from a persecutor of christians to a follower of jesus and we ended last week on the last line of paul's speech and noted that he didn't get to finish his testimony in the midst of speaking Paul says a word that turns this crowd from a quiet, attentive audience back into an angry mob wanting to kill him. And basically that is in verse 21. He says that Jesus appeared to him in the temple and, and spoke to him about uh, going to the Gentiles rather than staying in Jerusalem. And that word, Gentiles, turns this crowd back into an angry mob. And so let's read from verse 21, let's read the text, and we will walk through what happens all the way to chapter 23, verse 11. Now I'm going to read a lot of text this morning. It's going to be kind of a, there's a temptation to just check out when we're reading the text, this much text, because you know we're going to come back and explain it in a little bit, and so you just kind of check out. Don't do that. You need to hear the events that happen. You need to see what happens as we walk back through this. So the last thing Paul says in verse 21, He said to me, meaning Jesus appeared to him in the temple. He says that before. He said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, they turned back into an angry mob, the tribune, the Roman commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. And here's the reason to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So he's being brought back up there and he's about to be beaten to get answers. But, verse 25... When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. 
So those who were about to examine him, i.e. beat him, withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune looked at it, he was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, he had chained him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he had been accused by the Jews, he, the Roman tribune, unbound Paul, took the chains off of him, and commanded the chief priests and all the council, the Sanhedrin, to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And this is what Paul does. Chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting in judge, to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, and he quotes Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Almost there. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now look at this. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension, look at it, became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from them, among them by force and bringing him to the barracks. Verse 11, The following night in the barracks, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, also, so you must testify also in Rome. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would give us clarity. This is a very... Um, dense passage. There's a lot of things going on here, God. I pray that you would help us to see what you would have us to know and that your word would come to the fore, that you would teach our hearts to be faithful um, in your power today. We do love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's first look at the setting. Let's look at where Paul finds himself now. So in verse 22, it says, up to this word, up to him saying, God sent me to the Gentiles. They listened to him. And then when he said this, they, they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air, dirt in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Look at this setting. When Paul says, God has sent me to the Gentiles, Jesus appeared to me in the temple and he said, I am sending you to the Gentiles. That's just the straw that breaks the camel's back for this audience that's listening to him give his testimony. They listened as he told them, you know, of Jesus Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus, uh, of transforming him through that experience and through Ananias coming and praying with him. But, but 
When he says that all people, Jew and Gentile, are on the same footing in God's saving purposes, that's just too much for them to endure. They turn back into an angry mob, literally shouting for his death. This man should not be allowed to live. And they were throwing their throwing dirt in the air and throwing the I mean, they had become a riotous mob again. Now imagine what this Roman tribune who is standing next to Paul as he's speaking is thinking. He allowed Paul to speak to this crowd, hoping that Paul would calm them down, that he would disperse them. And we were told in the last section that Paul is speaking to the crowd in Hebrew, so this Roman doesn't understand any of what Paul has said or what he is saying. All he knows is that while Paul is talking to this crowd, everything blows up again. And they're a mob again, and they're rioting again. So this Roman tribune, whose neck is on the line if a riot breaks out, he's had enough of this. He's done fooling around with this guy and all of this stuff that's going on. He's going to get to the bottom of it, and he's going to do it right now. So he gives orders to take Paul back to the barracks, and we're just going to whip the truth out of him. Now, a Roman scourging was a very effective way to get prisoners to talk. It's different from how the Jews punished criminals. We've seen Paul take a a beating uh, in Acts chapter 16. The Jews beat uh, their prisoners with rods, um, and and that bruised, it it battered, it it definitely hurt for sure. But the Romans used what was called a flagrum. You've probably seen pictures of it in in Jesus' trial. It's a wooden handle with leather thongs, and it had bone and metal and all kind of things taped to the end. It wouldn't just hurt It would maim people for life. It was designed to rip away chunks of flesh. Many people throughout Roman history uh, were were crippled permanently or, or even killed during the process of a Roman flogging. So understand the setting where Paul now finds himself. He is, for all intents and purposes, completely and utterly alone surrounded by an entire city of people who seek his harm. The Jews want him dead. They've been, they've been hollering, kill this guy. He shouldn't be allowed to live. The Romans just need answers, and they're not above destroying his body to get answers. And you know what? If the flogging kills him, we just throw his body to the mob, problem solved, riots over. This is the definition of a no-win situation for Paul. Now, as we, as we examine what, the events that happened and how Paul navigates this, I want to make sure you see on the front end, Paul doesn't navigate this situation sinlessly. He's not without sin. He doesn't do everything right here. But in this, we do see four principles of wisdom, I think, for the witness who is in a hostile situation, facing whether it's mobs or persecution or even just the individual witnessing that we do to those who reject the message or ridicule us for the message. And the first thing I want you to see, the first principle is that we can, in some instances, use our legal rights to advance the gospel. It says, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, they're about to to flog him. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And the answer to that question is no, it's not. When the centurion heard this, this is a soldier that's about to whip him, he he went to the tribune and said to him, what are, notice it, what are you about to do? 
Not what am I about to do? What are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came himself and he said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says to him, yes. Roman citizens were given rights under Roman law. Beating or chaining uh, an untried, uncondemned Roman citizen was, was absolutely forbidden. So the soldiers that were dealing with all this, the tribune that had been dealing with all of this, this uh, mess, this riot and Paul and all of this stuff, they thought he was just some Jewish guy, you know, and that he'd caused a riot for some reason and this is just all just some big religious thing that's going on. But when Paul reveals his citizenship, that he is a Roman citizen, everything has to do with this whipping, this scourging comes to a screeching halt. Because to violate the rights of a Roman citizen meant death. So these soldiers now understood their necks were on the line. And they can't afford to be wrong. So the tribune comes himself. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, are you a Roman citizen? And he says, yes. To claim to be a Roman citizen and not be able to prove it and to be wrong or, or to be lying about it also was death. So not many people lied about it. He came to him and he said, are you a Roman citizen? He says, yes. And the tribune says, well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, but I was born a citizen. I am a citizen by birth. And look what happens. So those who were about to examine him, meaning beat him, they withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also, look at it, he was afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He chained a Roman citizen against the law. So first, this tribune thinks, well, Paul is, he's probably just a rich guy that bribed his way into citizenship like I did. You know, you, you can make bribes and you can buy your way into this. Maybe he's just a rich guy that bought his way in. But Paul reveals to him, no, I was born a citizen. And at that moment, things go from bad to worse for the tribune. Because he didn't know Paul, he doesn't know Paul's family, and neither do we know Paul's family, but to be a citizen from birth meant that his father was a Roman citizen. So the tribune all of a sudden realizes he had chained illegally and almost scourged the son of a Roman family. Oh, I'm in trouble now. A call to daddy and I lose my head. And we don't know who his daddy was, but that's what the tribune would be thinking. So in this instance, Paul uses his Roman citizenship, his rights under the law, to escape a flogging, basically, and to force this tribune, these Romans, to take him seriously. So the question for us today is, why does Paul invoke his rights here? If you remember back in Acts 16, he didn't say anything about being a Roman citizen before he was beaten there and imprisoned there in Philippi. It was also against the law there. The magistrates there were also part of the Roman Empire. He could have said, hey, can't imprison me, can't beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. But he said nothing in Philippi. Why does he do it here? Well, it wasn't because he was afraid of being beaten. He wrote to the Philippians saying, I'd rather go be with Christ. He did it because doing so here is what would advance the gospel. This situation here is not like the situation in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 where there was a newly founded church who was just beginning and needed the, the magistrates there in the city to get off their back so that they, would, that they would grow as a church. 
Here, Paul is in a Roman barracks surrounded by Roman soldiers who have no idea who he is, who have no idea what's going on, who don't know what he just said out to the crowd, who don't know why the crowd's mad, don't know anything about the gospel, no idea what's at stake. So Paul's death and his torture here will add nothing at all to the gospel, to his witness for Christ or his mission. He invokes his rights as a Roman citizen so that we know his testimony will go to Rome. He will be taken eventually to Rome and testify there. Listen, we've talked as we've walked through the book of Acts a lot about suffering for Christ's name and standing no matter what comes, no matter what hardship, no matter what suffering, no matter what persecution or ridicule comes, being a faithful witness to Christ. We've talked about being persecuted for Christ and doing so with hope and with strength and with resolve to be faithful, taking whatever comes. And in truth, we may be called, some of us may be called to suffer in ways similar to this for Christ's sake or to be ridiculed for Christ's sake. We may be called at, at some point in our lives to suffer for His name, but we are not called to suffer just for suffering's sake. There are times when we are to avail ourselves of the rights that we've been given under law for the advancement of the gospel. I can tell I'm maybe not hitting pay dirt there. Let me give you some examples. It's okay. Smile just one time. Okay, thank you. Now I feel a little better. Recently, part of the legislature in our country passed a bill that completely redefined marriage in a way that it's never been defined for in human history. In a way that no biblically-minded person can ever agree with or hold. And they refused to put in any amendments to the bill that would give protections to religious institutions or people that held sincerely held religious beliefs. So, I mean, not to be a fatalist, but it, the door could be swinging wide open for legal action to be taken against anyone who holds a biblical view of marriage. If that happens, what do we do? Do we just lay down and say, oh, I guess we can't have church no more. guess we can't preach anymore. I guess we can't do what we've done for what God's called us to do. No, that's not what we do. It would be right and proper to fight legally for the rights that we've been given under the Constitution. To fight that battle, in fact, would be necessary for the name of Christ. To shine a light on the gospel proclamation, on the truth of God's word, on what God says. And it would be necessary to fight that battle for the church to continue to live and to worship according to the scriptures. That's a case where we must use our rights as citizens under the constitution that we've been given, rights given by God, to be a faithful witness. And that's, that's a macro level. On a personal level, you know, if you, if you are being a witness for Christ, if you're standing in your yard, for instance, and you're witnessing to your neighbor, and somebody comes and hears what you're saying, and they assault you, or they vandalize your house because you have a Jesus, it's right for you to assert the rights that you have and call the police and make a report, you know, and to do those things, to invoke your rights under law so that you can stand for Christ. We're blessed in this country to, to live in this country with rights given to us by God and enumerated under the Constitution. It's not wrong to invoke them for the sake of truth. But you also have to remember, church, there are times 
when we're called to lay down our rights as well. For the gospel's sake. That's the key. We assert them for the gospel's sake. We lay them down in some cases for the gospel's sake. We've seen Paul lay his rights down many times, including in Philippi when he took the beating and imprisonment that he didn't have to take. So it takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to discern the right course of action, to be faithful to Christ and always do what not best serves me and my comfort and my right, but what best serves Christ to be a faithful witness. Are you with me? Say, I'm with you. Okay, so far so good. The second principle I think we see in this is that we're to obey God's commands in every situation. In every situation. In verse 30, it says, But on the next day, desiring to know, the tribune is desiring to know, look at it, the real reason why he was being accused, why Paul was being accused by the Jews. He unchained him, unbound him, and commanded the chief priests and the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So you can imagine, after Paul reveals his Roman citizenship to this tribune, to this Roman commander, he's in a very, very hard spot. I mean, Paul is still his prisoner, the riot still has to be explained to his superiors. He can't just let Paul go and forget about the whole thing. There may be another riot. He can't dispose of Paul in a quiet way because he's a Roman citizen. The protocol for arresting a Roman citizen is to draw up formal charges, and there are no formal charges. He is in a hard spot because he has no idea what's going on or why. So he decides to take Paul to the Sanhedrin, to the ruling council of the Jews, to get some answers. So he brings Paul before them, and immediately when Paul enters into the building, Paul launches into what I think is going to be another testimony, another defense. He says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? You see, Paul, I think, begins declaring his testimony again, his witness again giving the gospel to this council, and he starts it by saying, Men, brothers, I want you to know my conscience is clean before God, and I've striven to live with a clean conscience before God. He intends to continue testifying, but before he's able to say anything else, he's smacked in the mouth. This was an overt violation of Jewish law. Much like our own laws in Jewish court, one is innocent until proven guilty, to strike him would have, been, would have been highly illegal. And here you see something that is so out of character for Paul. He just lashes out in anger. He calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, meaning he's a hypocrite. It's a picture from the Old Testament, meaning pretty on the outside, decaying on the inside. Paul's anger here was not just because he was struck. He's been beaten several times and stoned several times in Acts. It wasn't just because he got slapped in the mouth. It was a reaction to the hypocrisy of these men. 
to claim to judge him by the law and then break the law while they're doing it. Do you see what he says? He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And then you see something that's even more strange. After this outburst, those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And all of a sudden, you see Paul just change gears. And all the anger's gone. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And then he quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. He says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there are a lot of suggestions about why Paul didn't recognize the high priest. We're not told for sure, and there's a list of them, so I'm not going to go through them all. I'm just inclined to think it was simply because, you know, Paul had been out of Jerusalem for decades at this point, and he didn't notice God. You know, he, Ananias became high priest in about 49. Paul, Paul didn't know who he was. For whatever reason, he didn't recognize him. It's clear here, Paul recognizes that his outburst was wrong, and it was sinful. I say that because he not only explains himself, you know, sorry brothers, I, he didn't say sorry, but brothers, I didn't know it was the high priest, but he also cites Exodus twenty two twenty eight as the command of God that he just broke. Paul understood that regardless of what this guy just did to him, he must obey God's commands in all things. This is something that we have to understand. Even in the worst circumstances, as we are faithful witnesses in the world, unjust or unlawful treatment doesn't give us the right to sin against God's commands. His word is unchangeable regardless of the circumstances. It would be, it would be easy for a worldly mind to say, well, that guy broke God's command against me, so I'm justified to breaking God's command against him. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. When you stand before God, every bucket's going to sit on its own bottom. Paul won't have to answer for what the high priest did. Paul will have to answer for what he did, how he responded. There is no injustice or sin committed against us that gives us the right to sin against God's law. Paul understood God had commanded not to speak evil or to curse, it says in uh, uh, Exodus 22, to curse a ruler of your people. Doesn't matter what evil Ananias did. And historically, we know that this high priest, Ananias, this high priest during this time, was one of the worst ones ever. He was such a wicked and evil man. But it doesn't matter. To speak evil of a ruler of the people is sin. And incidentally, it's sin today as well. As Christians navigating our witness in the world... We have to be careful how we talk about those in offices of authority. We can surely criticize actions and decisions and policies, but to speak evil of them, to, to literally in Exodus twenty two twenty eight 28, to curse them is sin. Second piece of wisdom for this witness in a hostile situation is no matter what, no matter what situation we're in, no matter what persecution, what injustice comes our way, we have to obey God's word no matter what. So in the instance I just cited, if for some reason, if, if it does happen and legal action is taken and we take it all the way to the Supreme Court and, and they say, okay, you got to stop preaching what you're preaching, what do we do? We obey God's command and we just keep on. 
and suffer whatever consequences happen. We have to obey God's command regardless. The third thing I want you to see is that we have to be ready to testify. Now you've got to follow me through this because this is a little obscure. Now when Paul perceived, so he just got smacked in the mouth. He just said, okay, I broke God's command. Don't speak evil of a ruler. Got it. And then Paul looks at the crowd and he assesses his audience and he says this. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of, Pharise son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose uh, between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, there are also several theories about what Paul was doing, how, what, he was, what he was meaning to happen with this statement that he made. Some people think that Paul was assessing the audience. He knew about this theological debate, and basically he's just going to drop a hand grenade in there so he can get out of Dodge. So they'll start arguing and he can leave. I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that, that he is doing that so he can escape. Jesus will tell him in verse 11, you've testified here, and so you will testify in Rome. I think Paul has now composed himself, and he is once again about to launch into a witness for the gospel. He's about to speak to the council again, but from a different angle. He just got smacked in the mouth. And as a Pharisee, he knows his audience. He knows the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he knows all about their theological differences and their debate between the two groups. And he is beginning his testimony again, this time framing it in terms of the resurrection of the dead because he knows there are at least half of the people in this room are going to want to listen to me if I frame it this way. He knows the statement that he makes, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead, is going to grab the attention of the Pharisees in the room and it may give him a chance to speak. There's no doubt he's going to talk about Jesus, but he begins it this way. And I don't think that even Paul expected what happens next when they start arguing. In fact, the whole room explodes it says, then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? It's obvious they don't understand the issue at all yet. And look at this. When the dissension became violent, it became a mob in the council chamber. The tribune, the Roman who'd brought him there, was afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces by these people. He commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. It says that some, not all, but some of the Pharisees stand up and say, hey, we don't find anything wrong with this guy. Now, it doesn't mean that they accepted Jesus or that they accepted Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. None of that's even entered into the argument yet. They, they still think it's a spirit or an angel that appeared to him or something like that. They're just defending their fellow Pharisee, debating their position as Pharisees. So instead of gaining a hearing, the two sides of this theological debate just break down into an all-out brawl. Verse 10 describes it violently. 
The Romans afraid they're going to tear Paul to pieces. And so they come and they take him away. Things don't turn out like Paul intended. But even in this instance, Paul was ready to testify. Even after being smacked in the mouth for opening his mouth, he reframed the discussion, saw his audience, wisely began again, and he's about to testify when he's cut off. He is acting wisely, calculating, understanding his audience. He's trying the best he can to find a way to gain a hearing so that he can be the witness that Jesus Christ has called him to be. There are many times that we're going to be facing no-win situations. People that will not listen. Family members who've said, will you quit talking to me about that for the last time? Our goal can't be self-preservation or comfort or ease or even, I'm not saying be a jerk, but even just keeping the peace. There's people's souls at stake to find a way to gain a hearing and be the witness that Christ has called us to be. Lastly, last point of wisdom I think is we are to rest in Christ's plan and His purpose. Verse 11, simple. The following night, the Lord Jesus stood by Him and said, Take courage. It's in the present tense. It's the durative present in Greek. It means keep your courage. Keep taking courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now put yourself in Paul's position for a second. Since returning to Jerusalem, he's been mobbed. He's been beaten. He's almost been flogged by Rome. He's under arrest. He's in chains. And both times that he tried to testify, once to the mob and once to the Sanhedrin, he's been cut off by an uproar and a brawl that broke out. He hasn't even gotten a chance yet to actively give the gospel. And now he's back in his cell. I would be thinking, what's the point of all this? I mean, why am I trying so hard? I haven't even been able to finish a testimony yet. Every time I open my mouth, it turns into chaos. What am I even doing here? Things have gone from bad to worse ever since Paul walked into Jerusalem. And it's here that Jesus comes and stands beside Paul. Paul is not alone in this city, as I said in the beginning. Even through the chaos and the feelings of hopelessness that I know I would be having, well, in fact, there's no chaos at all. Everything is going exactly according to plan. Jesus tells Paul, take courage, keep up your courage. These events are not out of control. They're not useless. They're not pointless. Jesus tells Paul, just as you have testified here in Jerusalem, that's why I take what he tried to do in the Sanhedrin as testimony, just as you have testified here in Jerusalem, you will testify to Rome. You see, all of this, the mobs, the arrests, the Romans who can't figure out what's going on, his Roman citizenship that he just happened to have, the Sanhedrin that won't listen to him and won't listen to his testimony and blew up there. All of this is what God is using to send Paul to Rome. If the mob wouldn't have blown up, the Romans would have never come. If they didn't bring him to the Sanhedrin, if they would have not turned into a brawl, but just sit there and listen to his testimony and judge, he would have probably been judged right there and that's it. 
All of this has been used by Christ, so he will go to Rome and be the witness that God is calling them to be there. That's where God intends to use him. Listen, as Jesus' witnesses, we can rest in the fact that our God is in control. Events are out of control, or seemingly so, in the world, on the news, in your own life, in your own family, in your own community. But God rules over all things. And even when things seem useless or pointless when we're trying to be the witness Christ has called us to be, even when the mob attacks, or when governments overstep their authority, or when religious leaders seek to corrupt truth or silence the true gospel, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Our call is simply this. Be faithful where He put us. Be faithful where He sends us. And leave the future to Him. Today has enough trouble of its own. No sense in worrying about tomorrow. No matter what dire circumstances it brings in being a witness, we can rest in His purposes. Because just like Paul, all alone in this city, verse 11 shows us that unshakable promise that he gives to his people in Hebrews and in Joshua that says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. In the midst when, if I was Paul, I would be feeling left and forsaken. Jesus appears to him and says, no, I haven't left you and I haven't forsaken you. I'm going to send you where you need to be. Listen, that promise is unshakable for you today. No matter what chaos is going on in your life, no matter what's happening, no matter what situation you find yourself in trying to be a witness for Christ, that promise is unshakable for you if you have been united with Christ in salvation. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But before any of us are called to be the witnesses that his disciples are called to be, we're called to be in living relationship with Jesus Christ. He gave his life on the cross to pay for our sin. And the command of the gospel today is what Jesus, the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark, the time has come, the kingdom of God is hand, repent and believe the gospel. Trust in the good news. Give him your heart and life today. Turn your life over to him and be the witness that he's called you to be where he has placed you. It's not the same place He's placed me or somebody else on the other side of the room. He's placed you in the family that you're in, in the neighborhood that you're in, in the job that you're in, in the school that you're in, in the place that you're in to be His witness. Let's be faithful. That's all we can do. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would help us to walk in your way faithfully. We know that we can't do it in our own strength. We know that we don't have the commitment. We don't have the... We don't have the drive. We don't have anything to offer you, God. All we have is dependence upon you. So God, we pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us and guide us, that you would show us the truth of your promises, that you are with us even when circumstances are not turning out what we think is to be favorable as we are trying to be faithful as your witnesses. God, we pray that you would show us just the beauty of your truth and where you have called us to be faithful. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, God, that you, would, that you would call upon their heart today, that you would draw them to you, that you would show them the picture of the cross, of the Son of God dying so that sin could be forgiven, sin could be washed away, and that we could be adopted into God, into your family. 
that we could be reconciled to you. God, there are many, many, many people who know the facts of the story, who know the truth of what happened at Calvary on that day, but who have never given their life to Christ. God, I pray that there would be none in this room today. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would receive you by faith this morning. We do thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. If you want to come, please do. Will you stand with me?